0: Please open your Bibles to James chapter 3 or 4. This morning we want to look at what is the source of our quarrels and fights. Now I intended to cover verse 1 of chapter 4 right through to verse three but because i went long in my teaching hour i will only um finish verse one the reason is there's a connection i will try to get to verse two if i can then we'll do that um but if if not then i will leave it for next time there's going to be two outlines this morning so don't get confused The first outline will cover the scope of chapter 4, and there's a reason I'm going to do that up front um, and at this stage, because it affects the end of chapter 3 as well. And then after that, later on, I'll give you the outline for this sermon and the next sermon as well. Chapter 4 stretches from the end of chapter 3 verse 18 through to 4. Verse 12. Now I know your Bibles have different um, chapter sections, and that's due to how the translators see where the section breaks are. I'm going to make a case for 318 to be part of 4.1, and I'll do that later on. But if you look at chapter uh, 4, verse 13, notice what he says Come now, you say. Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a place and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Now go to chapter 5, look at verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that come upon you. That is called an inclusio. The author starts with the same words and ends the section with the same words. And so chapter 5, if you will, begins in chapter 4, verse 13. So I'm going to move that section later on. Your Bible verses have not been inspired. I know some of you are shaking in your boots. He's changing the translation. No, I'm not. (laughs) I'm changing the way. That it's been broken up. Now, here's the outline for chapter four. James deals with words, wars, and wisdom in 318 through to four, verse three. So chapter four actually begins at the end of chapter three, verse eighteen. Then there are two middle sections. Which deals with salvation and repentance. So the second section within chapter four deals with enemies of God and the world, chapter four, verse four through to six, and then repentance and its fruit, chapter four, verse seven through to ten. So he deals with words, wars, and wisdom, and then he moves from that, if you want to subsection that. Enemies of God and repentance and its fruits. Tells you what the real problem is and how to overcome the real problem. And then it goes back to words, judgment, and the law of God in chapter 4, verse 11 to 12. Now, if you keep that outline in mind, and as you go back and read it, you will see that that's how the section of James breaks up. Now, let me make the case. For 3.18 through to 4.3 to be part, to be seen as part of each other. Often when we get to chapter 4, in our minds, there's a clear break. Why? Because it says chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And we don't connect it to what has gone before. You know, I do appreciate the work that has gone into tra- translations. But unfortunately, at certain stages, they do make some... Um, unhelpful decisions with regard to where to break the sections up. And this is one of those cases. As you inspect the section closer, you will see that James deals with verse 18 in terms of peace that comes to those who are wise. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? What does that deal with? Non peace. So 318 peace, 4 1 no peace. Clearly, those two are connected, right? There's internal war and an external war zone. This sets up for the condemnation. And the call to repentance in chapter 4 verse 4 through to 12. Oftentimes when people read chapter 4 they think believers and so they they make a difficult decision when it comes to James's call to submission and they say no this is believers who are not submitting to God these are believers who are acting as enemies of God and that may be true because he's writing to the entire community here chapter 2 verse 2 tells us that they are meeting in a what synagogue do you only have believers in a synagogue not at this stage in history James is in a unique time in history where you've got believers who have been exposed to Jesus Christ and have come and submitted their lives to Christ as Lord and now they are still in the synagogue because the separation between christians and jews have not yet been made this is very early on in the stages of the early church they are still meeting in the synagogue and so james writes to this synagogue in the synagogue where they are meeting and he says to them those who have peace with god are peacemakers in The church of God. But those who do not have peace with God are troublemakers in the church of God. Make sense? That's the connection between 318 and 41. And so I left 318. I was asked this morning when preach 318. So yes, kind of. But 318 provides a transition to the problem of chapter 4. James wants the believers to think about what God does in the midst of his community, in the midst of his people. Look at 3.18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's two things that James highlights in 3.18. The fruit of righteousness and the peace of peacemakers. It's pretty obvious. A harvest, literally, a fruit of righteousness is sown by peacemakers. Hmm. James uses an agricultural imagery to show the lasting effect of those who have wisdom from God. They sow the fruits of righteousness in the seeds of peace. Why? because they have peace they are known as peacemakers so James wants these saints to believe that if you have the wisdom from above in verse 17 that the effect of this will be seen in the community of the saints keep that in mind take note what he says in verse 17 Wisdom from above is first. And I said it's internal first before it's seen externally. So internal in relationship to God, it is first pure. And then the very next thing he mentions is peaceable. So in reality, the first external reality of wisdom from above is what? Peace. It's peace. Gentle open to reason, full of mercy, and full of good fruits, because the word full covers both, impartial and sincere. And last week we looked at those who discriminate and who are hypocrites. That's that last two words. Now James says, and as a result of having this wisdom, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. What does he just replace wisdom with? Righteousness. The fruit of righteousness. What James wants these readers to think of is this if you have wisdom from above, you also have what? Righteousness. You are right with God, you have a right response to God. And so, wisdom is seen in the fruit that righteousness demonstrates. In fact, the genitive here, the fruit of righteousness, it's the fruit that comes from righteousness or the fruit that is born out of righteousness. The fruit of righteousness here is akin to wisdom. It doesn't mean That you are wise if you have righteousness. It doesn't mean that. It means that if you have wisdom, you should also have what? Righteousness. You are saved then. You have a right relationship with God then. And as a result of that, you will see the effects of that right relationship with God in how you engage with God's people. That is what is behind verse 18. Righteousness bears fruit, and this fruit is sown in peace. Think about that. The righteousness that God gives is not just so that you have a right standing with you, but there's a right with him, but there's a righteousness makes itself manifest in how it relates to God's people. Righteousness does not cause wars. Righteousness works for peace. How do I know that James has the believer in mind? How do I know that James is uniquely thinking of those who have a right relationship with Jesus Christ? Look at the last line of verse 18. Peace is sown by those who are. Makers of peace, or literally peacemakers. Hmm. Where have you heard that term before? Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the what? Peacemakers. For they shall be called, take note of this, the sons of God. Who are the peacemakers? They have the label sons of God. They have the label being a child of God. What uh, James is after is to demonstrate this reality that those who have wisdom from above are those who have righteousness from above are those who sow peace in the church of God. Troublemakers, those who sow seeds of discord, those who cause problems in the church of Jesus Christ, as believers, are not acting as peacemakers. And watch out for them. We are told to be concerned about those who cause conflict in the church of Jesus Christ. In God's kingdom, God's people are not at war. Jesus speaks about his children in terms of being kingdom citizens. Blessed are the meek. You are not a peacemaker in order to get into the kingdom. You are a peacemaker because you are in the kingdom. That's what Jesus says. In God's kingdom, God's family act as family. They are not at war is what Jesus says. They are peace makers. James captures this point. He's not quoting Jesus, but he steals from Jesus in saying that, yes, those who have wisdom from above are those who have righteousness and are also those who make peace. This is one group of people. So James connects the section for us. I'm not doing it. Chapter 3, verse 3, uh, 13. Through to 17 deals with wisdom. The lack of wisdom and the presence of wisdom. Lack of wisdom are those who follow their passion. Who follow their heart. And yet today we are told to what? Follow our heart. Yes, that's what a fool does. So go ahead and follow your heart. And then he says those who are wise don't follow their heart but they follow God. So he makes this connection for us in saying that if you are a child of God, you will be marked by peace. And you may be thinking in your mind, you're not married to my husband. You do not know my brother. It's interesting that James doesn't care of the personal struggles that you have he makes an emphatic statement here the fruit of righteousness is seen by those who sow peace it's seen in what we sow i like the agricultural term here when you sow something what do you expect a return unless you sow it in my garden and all the bugs eat it up, but nevertheless, notice what he says, sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice that he does not say that we are creators of peace. This peacemakers is descriptive of what you are. You're not the creator of peace. You are sowing peace seeds of peace and leaving the results up to god you're not grabbing someone by the necktie and say come we must be at peace with one another you are doing the work of peace and allowing god to do the work of peace peacemakers are those who are blessed in jesus's eyes Peacemakers are those who are family of God in Jesus' eyes. Peacemakers are not those who are enemies of God in Jesus' eyes. And you will see the significance and the relevance of that as we get to the middle of chapter 4. It's a quality of righteousness, of those who are righteous. Now we may... Not fully understand this idea of sowing. Why would he use this word sowing? In the Semitic understanding of sowing, it actually demonstrates dependence on, on God. When you put something in the soil, it grows by itself. That's God's work. He provides the capacity to grow or not to grow. And so as you are sowing into the ground, you are also saying, Lord, I'm depending upon you to provide a harvest. And that's the analogy that James uses. We are sowing peace, the seeds of peace, as we trust God to not only provide peace, but also help us to maintain peace. must be the devil trying to cause no peace. So James helps his readers to see that what they are witnessing in this community is surely not the signs of wisdom, surely not the signs of having a right relationship with God, because on the contrary, what they are seeing are signs of war. James moves from peace to war in the swoop of one line. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He contrasts the work of peace of those who have wisdom from above with those who sow discord and causes problems in the church. Understand, whoever or wherever the wisdom of this world is at work, there you will have conflict. Wherever the wisdom of the world dominates the heart, there you will have conflict. James alluded to that earlier on, and I will show you that later on. That is my introduction So now let me provide the outline for the sermon chapter 4 which includes 318 can be outlined as follows the source of conflict and the effect of conflict it's pretty simple the source of conflict 318 verse 1 and 4 verse 1 and then the effect of conflict Chapter 4, verse 2 to 3. What is the source of our war of words? Um, yeah, that's me, that's me. I like the book, War of the Worlds, and so I was like, yeah, I've got to put that in there. War of words. James begins by demonstrating that the source of human conflict, is something innate to all humans. It's an internal problem that everyone has. This conflict is revealed in three ways. First, there's conflict with others. And then secondly, there's conflict within. And then thirdly, there is conflict with God. And I'm not going to be able to get through all of that. The internal conflict is seen in... How we treat others. Yes, I meant to say it that way. Internal conflict is seen in how we respond to others. And that internal conflict and demonstration of that internal conflict, which is now external, tells us something about our conflict with God. So read with me. Chapter 3, verse 18 through 4. Verse 3, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet and you do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel? You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. That's the first section in James chapter 4. The text literally reads in 4 1 From whence comes wars? From whence comes quarrels? I like the older translations because they capture that. Sins. But take note at the end of verse one what causes the word is literally wars and conflict among you. What is the cause of fights in your midst? The question here is literally what's the source of your conflict with one another? What's the source of your wars between each other Notice 316 For where there where jealousy and selfish ambition exists there disorder and every vile practice exists also In other words, what is in will be made manifest outward. So keep that in mind as we move ahead. So where does it come from? This adverb here, from whence or from where, is after the source. Literally, the word means what is the local source? What place? And there's a connection to another word in verse 17. Wisdom. From above speaks of a location external to man, it's something outside of man, so wisdom comes from above. And so James, when he starts in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, From what place does quarrels come? So if wisdom is from above and wisdom results in peace, in chapter 3, 18, where does the quarrels then come from? You see the connection? What then is the source of the problems? Tell me the location and the source of your fights. Because if wisdom results in peace, what is causing the fights? This is significant. James wants him to get to the heart of the matter. Just as he's now expressed the glorious blessing of peace that comes to those who are wise, so now he expresses the disorder that comes to those who are unwise. He's still speaking about wisdom. This word quarrels, like I said to you, is literally a word for chronic war. There's a country that loves war. It's always in, and it's not South Africa, always involved in war chronic war symptom that's the word here always in a campaign of war and when we think of it we think of just mere verbal quarrels this is not that word he's saying you guys are acting as if you are enemies you are constantly at each other what is the cause of that war it's a military word Remember Matthew 24, verse 6, where Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of wars. What do you think of when you hear that? Literal fighting. That's the same word. This is a weighty word for squabbles among people. Inherent in this word is the idea of antagonism, hostility, or wartime conflict. Listen, you're not having a sip of tea with a person who is your enemy you and again him so don't think a mere squirmish. this is hostility this is constant conflict and fighting where does it come from the second word that james uses here is translated fights and can be translated quarrels you can see the problem right this word speaks of individual battles in the campaign of war so when you think the first word speaks about the entire campaign this nation is at war with another nation you can think of israel and hamas now but then in the canopy of that war there are also little skirmishes, individual fights that's taking place this is that word it's part of the war but the individual aspect of that war. Now, when it is used in the plural, it it means this, to have wars or fights without actual weapons. Hmm. To have wars and fights without actual weapons. Hang on. So what on earth does that mean? So you're not really fighting, are you? You're having a war of words, or maybe a fist fight. The peace of three eighteen is disturbed by the wars of four one. Wisdom equals peace. Lack of wisdom equals wars. James makes no distinction between literal wars and verbal wars. He uses two words that relate to the same thing. They all arise from the same source. From where do these things come from? Notice what he says. Where do wars and where do quarrels, fights, or verbal wars come from? Among You, that is, in your synagogue, in your congregation, in your midst. What then is the source of these wars? There's a sense of interpersonal fighting that James is highlighting here. This is not indicative of a church that has submitted its will to God. And for one, James follows up this question with another question. Now regularly you don't answer a question with a question please don't do that. but James has the right to do that because he's the author of this book and so in this part of verse one he highlights what the actual source is. Take note: is it not this that your passions are are at war within you isn't that a strange thing to say what's the source from where does it come from james literally says is it not from here i think it's the net bible that closer closely reflects that is it not from this that captures the sense Is this not the source? Is this not the location? Is this not behind your quarrels, your fights, your wars? Namely your passions? That is strange. Why would passions lead to wars? James is depicting the inner desire to get something that one does not possess and will fight for that thing at any cost. Is it not that passion, desire, want, lust that causes fights among you? The question requires a positive affirming response. In other words, yes. Yes, James. This is the source of my fighting. This is the source of my wars. This is the source of my quarrels. It is my passions running amok. Notice what he says. Is it not this? Is it not from this? Is it not from here that your passions are waging? war within you. It is at war within your heart. The reason why you have external verbal wars is because there is a war raging in your what? Heart. The internal turmoil feeds external strife. So, Before I elaborate on that, let me explain this word passions. It can mean pleasure of any kind. It can mean a desire for anything, good or evil. Can, but oftentimes in the scriptures it is used of evil pleasure. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 13. It is part of that which defines the unbelieving having evil pleasures. In Titus 3, verse 3, it is cu- coupled with sinful passions. It's a strong, controlling impulse that drives you to action. It's the same word from which we get hedonism. A lust for self-pleasure, a pursuit of self-indulgent pleasures. Is it not this passion that drives you to war, is what he's saying. Understand the weight of what James is saying. Where do external verbal wars come from? Is it not this, the woman you gave me? No. Is it not this, the man that you have given to me? No. We fight externally because there's a raging infernal war internal war in our hearts there is a fight for your passion there is a fight for your desire in your heart that's why you quarrel that's why you fight there is a war for my satisfaction. There is a war for my will. There is a war for my wants. And so, because I don't get what I want, what do I do? I fight with everybody. Isn't that true? You see it with kids. Imagine a, a child walking out by out of a shopping mall and he sees what he likes. I want that red car. And if he doesn't get it, he throws himself On the ground and he rolls around like a little brat. Fortunately, we didn't have that problem because we dealt with it at home. There are bursts of frustration and anguish and fighting and screaming external. Why? Because there's a fight inside for what you want. Why? Why is there an internal struggle? Internal wars lead to external verbal warfare. I say that again. Internal wars lead to external verbal warfare. The reason you are engaged in so much conflict, James says, is because something's wrong in your heart. Unsatisfied hearts are. Uh, are expressed in unfettered attacks. It is Jesus that uses this word, passions, of those seeds that fell among the thorns. And Jesus says that that seed is choked out. By the cares of life. And overwhelmed by the pleasures of life. The pursuit of what it wants. The heart wants. Overwhelms him. And that seed. That fruit. Does not mature. That is not descriptive of a child of God. Where do wars come from? From our hearts. The same word, pleasures, is used of those who are disobedient and unbelieving in 2 Timothy 3.4. Speaking of those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They've replaced a worship of God with a worship of self. That describes sinners. They who have exchanged God for self. This is indicative of the human heart. We are prone to make idols of anything. The source of conflict is that passion, that inward focus, that self-seeking nature, that self-pleasing desire that, if it's not fulfilled, erupts in war-like proportions externally. An uncontrolled, raging, unpeaceable, non-gentle person. The members among you, or the the, the the members that James is speaking about here is not the church, but the internal, literally your own members, that which is within you. The picture here is of an unsatisfied heart. An unsatisfied heart that is fighting for its own passions. An unsatisfied heart that causes conflict externally because it is not satisfied. That's the cause of quarrels and fights. One of the struggles in biblical counseling Something that we do need to consider is we love to deal with symptoms. We say we shouldn't deal with symptoms, but we love to deal with symptoms because it's easy. And so when there's a couple that quarrels, what do we try to deal with is the quarrel. Well, what caused the quarrel? Okay, no, she cooked the lamb too long. I don't know if that's possible, but she spoiled my favorite meal. And so I blew up. That's not the cause. She scratched my car. Hmm. Interesting. That's not the cause. May contribute, but that's not the cause. We deal with fighting and with arguments. We deal with the struggle of interpersonal relationships. But we don't go, go to the cause of the problem. That's what James goes to here. What is really the problem? The reason you are hurtful towards other people is because you have a heart that is controlling you. You have a passion that drives you to self-exaltation, to self-desire, to self-want. You want everybody to meet your need and that's why you lash out at people. Listen, an unsatisfied heart is a dangerous heart. You will see that in a moment's time. Unsatisfied internal passions, those unmet desires, those unfilled wants, those unfilled pleasures leads to impulses that can lead to external factions. Why the source? See, symptoms can be managed by people. Think about that. If a guy is a drunkard, if it's a a drug addict, if he struggles with smoking, you can put them on a schedule and they can outgrow it, right? Just believers and unbelievers can do that. You can grow into a habit to do a good thing. So it's easy to talk about symptoms, but we don't often talk about the cause of that symptom. What causes, quote-unquote, addiction? It's a desire. It's it's a desire. It's a love for self. We can manage the addiction, but we cannot manage our hearts. The reason James points to the heart is because remember the word seed I used there? You're leaving the results up to God. He does the same here with pointing to the heart as the problem, the passion as the problem, the source of the problem is internal it is the heart you may manage your symptoms but you cannot change your own heart so who do you have to depend on for the heart change you look to god notice what he says in verse 4 you adulterous people do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with god verse 6 but god gives grace Therefore, he says, God opposes the proud, but give grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. He points them to God because James recognizes that there's a problem in the heart. Our hearts can lead us into major trouble. We know that is true, right? What about our freedoms? What about our freedoms? Our freedoms can turn into bondage. A good thing can become a bad thing when the good thing becomes a controlling thing. Make sense? That's when you have become enslaved to that thing. Let me give you an illustration. Credit cards. Do I need to say anything else? Credit cards. It's a good thing in that if you can manage it, it gives you good credit. But if you can't, it enslaves you. What about food? We read this morning in Genesis, you can eat every leaf you want, as long as it doesn't kill you, and you can eat any meat you want. As long as it's not alive. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't need to bleed. So if you want your steak rare, go ahead. It's not a sin. Amen, yes. Just as long as the heart is not still in the animal while you're eating it. You're free to eat anything and everything, yet it can enslave us, It can consume us, why? Because of the heart. The minute the heart attaches onto something, that enslavement becomes a controlling element in that person. The source of the problem really tells you what the real issue is. You fight and you quarrel, you at war with one another, not because you just like to fight. No, it's because there's something wrong with your heart. Not only does James show what the source of our problem is, but also he shows us the effect of this conflict. There are three areas of effect. Unfulfilled desire, unfulfilled want, and unfulfilled prayers. I've got five minutes. Let me finish it. Look at verse two. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, the last part of verse two makes better sense to be the first part of verse three. Look at verse three. You ask and you do not receive. In fact, in the Greek, you will see the verbal sense and it's connected to one another. Again, the versification here is actually not the best. And so verse two ends at the end of quarrel. You desire and you do not have. You covet and you do not obtain. So you fight. Let me give you the internal structure of how this works. James says, you have a desire but you cannot get it. You murder. You have coveting, but you can't obtain it. You quarrel and you fight. The two verbal senses, you desire and you covet, are offset by these two. You kill and you quarrel. Your desire leads to external, horrendous action. Your coveting leads to external, horrendous fighting. ESV, in this case, I think has the best breakdown of us too. You desire and you do not have, so you mirror. I love the smoothing out there. As a result of your desire and a result of you not getting your desire, You lash out at people. You covet, but you can't get it. And so you fight. Why? Because you want it. The more you can't have it, the more you fight for it. I remember growing up, we had a policy that Sundays would be chicken day. I don't know if colored still have that. I still believe it's the righteous thing to do. There must be chicken on a Sunday. I remember one day when my mom decided we're not having chicken, we will have lamb. And we love lamb. And so it's a special occasion for us to be able to buy lamb and to have it on a Sunday. But not so with this family. We were so upset that my brother went out to KFC to buy chicken so that we can have what our heart so desperately wants. I know it's a silly illustration, but the controlling desire causes you to react. You do something, the verbal sense here of the action, of, of your wanting. Your desiring is an ongoing desire. You have this desire and this want for something, but you constantly don't get it. And so the net result of that is you lash out at people. He uses a strong word here. You murder. Is it possible that James actually means that they are killing people in this congregation? That's hard if that's the case. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Behold the wages of the laborers who mow your fields which, uh, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of the harvest. You have lived in, uh, on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You followed the lusts of your heart. And you have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he does not resist you. Is it possible that in this congregation there were those who were killing their own? Wow. It's possible. Or, as my Greek professor said, that he's probably using hyperbole. To express the deliberate over-exaggeration of an action. That makes a lot of sense to me. It's possible that that is what he's doing. The deliberate exaggeration of the action. You go overboard. You desire you can't have and so you go overboard in your reaction. That makes sense. So he uses the the, um, murder as a balance to your desire of your heart. Others say that it's talking about how Jesus speaks about hating your brother in your heart. It's hard to say what exactly James has in view. I do lean to the idea that this is hyperbole. So you murder. Your unfulfilled desire will lead you to unbelievable action. That's the force of what he's saying. Murder is rooted in the what? Heart. That's what he's saying. Your external actions is directly linked to your heart. Unmet desire will lead to unbelievable activity. It's like maybe you missed your anniversary. And so instead of buying roses... You buy her some fake flowers that is dirty and was lying in the second-hand pile at a thrift store. Um, what do you call this thrift stores in, in South Africa? Charity store, sorry. You walk up to her and you say, it's our anniversary here. And her reaction is not that she takes it and throws it into the trash can. She bends your nose out of shape. And rightly so. That's an overreaction to a mishap, to an oversight. That's what James is after. There's an overreaction to something that you can't have. The desire of the heart is so controlling that you will do anything for it. Whether it's control, whether it's power, whether it's your standard, whatever it is, you're so committed to it that you will go out of your way for it. Wow. When we are not satisfied internally, we act on that impulse. Secondly, there's not only... Unfulfilled um desire, but also there's unfulfilled wants. Notice what he says in verse 2. You covet and you cannot obtain. Again, the idea is an ongoing coveting. You're constantly looking at something else, and you want it, and you want it, and you want it, but you just can't have it. So, what do you do? You fight, you walk in the house and you fight. You go to work and you fight with everybody. It's just a regular habit for you is to fight. Why? Because you want something so bad, but you can't get it. Again, James demonstrates the cause problem of our struggles. The real reason we are at people is because there's a problem with the passion in our heart. What is the problem? Our desires have come to dominate our hearts. Let me say it a different way. You have elevated yourself to the throne of your heart. And replaced Christ as Lord over your Where have we heard this before? Chapter 3 verse 16. This is evidence of a heart that is ruled by wisdom that is not from above. Thirdly, the third effect of an unsatisfied heart is seen in unanswered prayer and conflict with God. Notice what he says in verse, the end of verse 2. You do not have... Because you do not ask. You know what that demonstrates? Self-reliant, prayerless expectation. Whatever we look for in satisfaction, whatever the source of our contentment is, whatever that object is that brings us most joy, that is the thing we worship. If the, the heart must have it in order for our demeanor demeanor to change and that thing is supreme in our hearts. This is a scathing rebuke. Notice the word, notice what he says in verse 4, you. Adulterous people—that is prophetic in the way that it deals with him. Why adulterous people? Because they've gone from worshiping God to worshiping themselves. They've exchanged the worship of God to the worship of their own hearts. You've adulterated the right relationship, and you've put something else in the place of God. That is the fundamental problem. The reason you struggle in your external relationship, the reason you fight is because you have exalted yourself as God in your own hearts. And this is reflected in how they pray. You do not have because you do not ask. You don't even prioritize God in your prayers. You are so self satisfied, you are so set on your own passions that you have drowned out God from your prayer life. This exhibits self sufficiency and not a God dependency. Prayer demonstrates dependence on God, but prayerlessness demonstrates dependence on self. Where do we see this? Name it and claim it. Think about that. That's prayerless expectation. That is saying, I want that. Isn't that coveting? Without God, You're claiming something that doesn't belong to you, that is coveting, that's demonstrating a heart that is far from God, and not a heart that worships God. You don't have, because you don't flee to the one that can give you. Prayerless expectation. Secondly, there's selfish, selfish prayerful petitions. Notice in verse 3, you ask and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly. When you do pray, when you do find yourself on your knees, what do you say? I want that because that will please me. Back to selfish, self-centered worship. Accumulating for yourself. Where do we see this? Consumerism. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, I must have. The want becomes a controlling desire. Bigger bonds, bigger stuff, more stuff, the best stuff right now. This insatiable desire ruins us. Ruins our relationships and destroys peace with others. Why? Because at the heart of it, we are actually at war with God. This is how our sinful passions is manifested in our relationships. Let me say it this way Sin is what we pursue when God is not on the throne of our hearts. Sin is what we do when we pursue our desires instead of God. These unfulfilled desires, improper petitions, and coveting causes problems within the community. This is why they struggle. This is why they fight. James 4 verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's saying you have a heart problem and you need Christ. You need God. This is a holistic condemnation of the heart of man. Humble yourself. Bow the knee. And make Christ Lord of your heart. Let's pray. Father, we say with a hymn writer, I need thee every hour. O oh, gracious Lord, forgive our arrogance, Lord, that we think we can handle life apart from you. Cleanse our hearts from the sinful pride of self-exaltation and worship. You know what we need. So grant us patience, gentleness, mercy, love, kindness. Help us to pursue the things that bring glory to you and not pleasure to ourselves. What we need is not more, Lord. What we need is rest and peace in you. Grant that. Show us how that we may glorify you in every aspect of our lives. For your sake, we pray. Amen. I know the time is far.